Welcome to the Change Alchemist. Today's guest is Anthony Hayes. Anthony has spent more than 18 years in communications, crisis and issue management. He's the founder of the Hayes Initiative, a boutique certified LGBTQ-owned and operated PR and strategic communications firm in New York City. He talks about the future of PR, crisis communications and the evolving role of internal communications. Prior to founding the Hayes Initiative, Anthony served on Hillary for America's national advance team, where he specialized in crisis management and oversaw media logistics. He regularly briefed Secretary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders and their senior staff. The future of communication in particular I believe for the next 10 years is going to be solely around focusing how you break through the challenge around trust and misinformation because I think we've gone for so long now with periods where either online or from leaders around the world people putting out information that either certain people believe certain people don't believe and so there's a lot of us versus them and people are really desperate to know where to go to get really solid information but i think truly the challenge that every communicator every leader is going to have in the future as we move forward in communications is really breaking through the trust problem that we have around people just not believing the information that they're given. Welcome to the Change Alchemist, Anthony. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Um, so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's dive right into the Hayes initiative. Tell us about your firm and how you got here. Sure, I started the Hayes initiative. I worked on Secretary Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 and when that campaign ended, I was going to join a couple of uh talking to some communication firms and got fairly far along in New York City with a communications firm and was going to join. And multiple people said, "Oh my gosh, that's great. We would love to have you run our communications and let us know. We'll give you a retainer." And a very smart friend of mine said, "Oh my gosh, why are you doing that why don't you start your own business how many retainers do you need to start a business and i was like i don't know how many do you need and somebody else called and then said your name keeps coming up we need someone to run a nationwide bus tour around not repealing the affordable care act um and your name keeps coming up would you be interested and i said just sort of whimsically i said oh yes you can hire our firm and she, they're like oh great of course just send us your contract i said right away and i hung up and i was like google contract and you know and i sort of decided to start the company but and all of that happened very quickly you know that was happening in November the same month that uh the campaign ended so you know I hadn't been home for a year and a half and hadn't slept and so I wasn't quite in the mindset of starting a firm but I kicked off the firm and we're an LGBTQ owned and operated public affairs firm and we really focus on giving our clients access and expertise at the crossroads of communication government affairs and stakeholder outreach. So we do that in a lot of ways. So we either get contracted to run communications for people, offer communication strategy, 
Um, a good percentage of our business is crisis management, crisis communication. So we have been busy over the last year, to say the least. And then we also have clients where we work on government relations or more stakeholder outreach in the local community. So whether that's somebody's trying to build something in a big city like New York, you're going to have to do a lot of government outreach and community relations. So we have a lot of fun and really do sort of cross lots of different sectors. Amazing work. And I'm particularly struck by your work with the Hillary campaign and the Clinton Foundation as well. How did that come about? And can you tell us kind of your top learnings from, from that campaign? Because I'm a big fan. I was a big supporter. So I'd love to hear more. Oh, sure. Well, I too <laughs> was a big supporter uh, of the secretary and still am today. So I, you know, I had been in politics. I really got into sort of communication politics through LGBTQ advocacy here in the United States. And of course, knew the secretary. I mean, she was my senator when she was a senator of New York. And, um, and it just, you know, politics, believe it or not, it just at some point gets to be sort of a small group of people. Everybody knows one another uh, kind of idea. And we had, I knew she was running and I at the time was managing media and communications at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And really sort of let my friend set know that I wanted to work on it. I always wanted to work on a presidential campaign and just got, I got connected with people and started doing some advance work. I was part of the national advance team. That's the group of people that, you know, you, you usually land at two or three days, maybe a week before the secretary gets somewhere. And they give us a rough idea of what they want to do while she's there. And we sort of piece it all together. So whether that's a rally, whether that's press, doing press at some local businesses or meeting with local leaders, having roundtable meetings, we sort of set up all the logistical side of it. And so, you know, it was really, I think probably one of the biggest learnings that I had was just to sort of always <laughs> always try to have fun in chaos. I'm, I'm a big believer in enjoy what you do. And I sort of made a promise to myself when I signed up for the campaign, I, I just sort of thought anything they ask me to do, I'm going to say yes to just because I want the experience. I've never worked on a presidential and I really want to. And it really um, paid off because it never felt like I needed to be somewhere else. Everywhere that I was, I felt like was where I, I was supposed to be. And I knew I was helping. And I think certainly the folks in the campaign noticed that too, because there was really never a time where I was like, I won't do that. And I think so much of the camp, so many of the campaign staff were like that. So it was just such an incredible environment. But you really do have to focus on, especially when you're engaging with the press corps that travels around a presidential I think a lot of it is charm and disarm, as I like to say, where we forget that these sort of the reporters or the stereotype of reporters of them screaming questions at you while you're going from one place to another. Sometimes that exists for sure, but they really do have a job to do and they really are professionals. And I think if you sort of approach, um, and this is certainly a note that I always make to young communi communicators or PR people who want to get into the PR businesses, you have to really respect and understand how media works. And you need to respect that they are colleagues that have deadlines and bosses who require things and they have an enormous amount of pressure. And if you don't understand that pressure, then you can't really be frustrated when they're not writing the way you want them to or covering the things you want if you haven't sort of met their deadlines. And I think a lot of times people approach too host, they're too hostile uh, to the press because I think one, they're nervous or they think they're gonna get bad coverage. 
when really I think the best thing you can do is just to, again, treat them with respect. And as I like to say, charm and disarm, they may come in hot, but you can always sort of like dial it down. If you show that you're willing to work and you show that you're willing to prove your point, they're not stenographers. And I think a lot of times people believe that they should be writing the press release that they get, they were sent. And that's not what reporters do. That's not their job. But it was a remarkable time. I loved it. Obviously, I wish it ended differently. But aside from that, it was a, a tremendous experience to, to get to work for her. Uh, and still, uh, even after the campaign, be able to be a part of, the, of their world and get to sort of support them here and there. That's great. So I noticed uh, you've been in uh, New York for a while, but you grew up in Oklahoma and you have a pretty remarkable story. I'd love for you to tell us about the turning point in your childhood and, and maybe even into your young adulthood that was instrumental in your career choice and some of the learnings that, that you might be able to provide as takeaways for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. Oklahoma and New York City are very different. And I really hadn't really hadn't ever been to the city until I got here. Needless to say, it was it was for me love at first sight. I think when the plane landed at LaGuardia, I was so instantly I just exhaled and really felt at home. And I, I I'm not quite sure why, because uh, it is a chaotic and crazy place to live. But yeah, I grew up in Enid, Oklahoma. It was a really small town, probably 30, 40,000 people. And I think I realized Early on, I was a member of the LGBTQ community, and obviously, while I love Oklahoma, it is it is extremely conservative, and we are talking well over 20 years ago, where being a, a gay person, it was a very different time and scenario. And so I, I think that was probably living through that and having to have conversations, certainly as I grew up, and then certainly as I started coming out, and then when I started advocacy, I think I realized that's my skill set is ha having really difficult conversations, finding common ground, and really taking something that is either really supercharged or complicated and explaining it to people in a way that they can see themselves in it. And I think that's sort of <laughs> where I cut my teeth, I guess, on communications, not knowing it at the time that was going to be what I did for a living. Uh, but I think that's really sort of where I figured that out and came to New York. And it's been a great ride since I got to New York, to say the least. That's a very interesting reason to, to actually pick a job in communications, but I can completely <laughs> see why and how. <laughs> yeah. I remember a quote from Deborah Tannen, who is one of my favorite authors and a linguistics professor at Georgetown. She says, we tend to look through language and not realize how much power language has. Mm. And I think like. people like you who are skilled at communication, um, it might come naturally, but for other people, I think they still have a lot of learning to do in terms of mm -hmm. messaging and just understanding their audience and being authentic too. Yeah, 100%. So, um, communications is so important. And last year was a year where I think we realized the value of communications. I mean, look at the number of Black Swan events. There was BLM and COVID. And going into this year, we had the storming of the Capitol what, in your view, is the role of communications in a post-COVID world? Where do you see PR and communications evolve? Wow. I, it's so hard because we're so <laughs> currently today still in COVID. And I think we'll be for a while. I think that I think what 
we are seeing, certainly in the United States, I think you're seeing in the transition that took place on January 20th from President Trump to President Biden, I think you're seeing very quickly and almost overnight how communications can play a major role in running a country, in making sure that people feel secure, and it's just different styles. You know, I'm not getting into the politics of President Trump versus President Biden, but I think that whether you're a Trump supporter, a Hillary supporter, a Biden supporter, no matter no matter who you support, I think you could sort of look at um, President Trump's style of communication. And I think just, just again, criti- not critiquing what it was, but just critiquing the style, it was, I think, on a good day, chaotic. And I think that had incredible results on business. I think it had incredible results on how people feel, you know, especially when in what is a global pandemic, people want to feel confident and empowered. And it was, you know, part of why for any leader taking politics out of it, any leader, whether you're a CEO of a major bank or a tech company, everybody wants to lead with confidence and feel like they are know what they're talking about. But the reality is because it was so new and none of us had ever gone through a pandemic like this, it was impossible to lead that way. And so what really resonated, I believe, most powerfully during 20, you know, 20, both with Black Lives Matter or whether it's COVID or whether it's the storming of the Capitol was that were the people who could use empathy because I think empathy was something that was sorely missing because I think it was just a remarkable time uh, for every individual. And, and I think that was the communication tool that would really give leaders what they wanted, which was to connect with people. Because I think sometimes we just don't know the answers. We don't exactly know the path forward, but we do know how we're feeling. And so I think when people can talk about that and they can provide a little bit of hope and they can remind everybody that it is short-term and the things you can do in the short-term is this, this, and this. And once we cross this milestone, we're gonna have more information. But communication relating to all the things you mentioned, I think was at the center of it. And I think the people that really succeeded in terms of actually breaking through and really connecting with their audiences were the people who used empathy above everything else versus trying to lead with like brute force or confidence or, or language that we just didn't know whether there was just a lot of unknowns and nobody really wanted, no, leaders don't like to say that, but it's just part of life. So but that's what I think. I, it almost feels like it's a non-masculine leadership style. And I hate to use gender yeah. here, but it feels like it's more feminine, leaning towards non-masculine. And, and if you look at some of the work um, that Airbnb did, Ryan Chesky, uh, you exactly. work with Airbnb. I exactly. looked at his um, letter, his layoff letter. What a beautiful, beautiful letter. Yep, so, agree. And so I think there was a way to do it. And some leaders um, kind of embraced and leaned into that empathy. And I, I agree completely. And it's unfortunate that I agree that it's unfortunate that we have to bring masculine versus feminine into it. But I think it is why a lot of times you see women leaders are, it's just, it's very easy to see the results of when women leaders get in the room and hash things out, so to speak, because they're willing to compromise. They're willing to sort of figure things out. And it's just, hopefully we get to a place where I think, I hope that more of the male leaders 
around the world start to understand that the way to really reach people right now in particular is empathy. One of the things you did mention is crisis communications. Mm -hmm. So walk us through some of the steps a company should take in kind of preparing for a crisis. Obviously last year was an exception. Do you feel like you need a playbook even before something happens to kind of- Oh my gosh, yes. What are some <laughs> tips and tricks? Yes, yeah, so sorry to interrupt you so emphatically, <laughs> but yes is the answer to you. Yeah, so I, number one, the thing that everyone has to remember, regardless of the size of the company, how many employees, what you do for a living, it's not when, but if. It will happen. You will, it may not be a giant catastrophe, but you're going to have bumps in the road. It's just any business owner, again, small or big knows that. So I am a firm believer in not only having a crisis management plan, but I'm a firm believer in revisiting it at minimum every two years, because it needs to be a living, breathing document. And it needs, because things will change on it. The, the people, the list of contacts that you put on the crisis plan four years ago is likely going to be different. You may have a new, I don't know, vendor who manages your operations, but you forgot to put them on the sheet or the plan. And now you don't have any electricity and you have a printout of a plan without the phone number that you need. So there, there's a real, these aren't documents that you don't revisit. But at minimum, it should be what is your worst case scenarios for your company. And so you really need to game that out. Obviously, it goes without saying for smaller companies, it's just easier uh, because it's easier to sort of game out a game, game them out and, and there's just less complexity. And when you get into the bigger companies, this is why we get brought in to help people write these plans is because it is complex and you do want someone leading that project because you do want to game out all the scenarios. You do want to run through them while while it's not urgent. Um, and then when it happens, you know, you pick the plan up, you pull together your team. Again, if you're a small business, you're pulling the whole team in. It's just what it is. But if you're a bigger business, then you pull in the 10 people that you've assigned to the crisis team. Everybody knows their role. Um, and you really start figuring out what it is. I think the biggest thing is trying to determine when you need to make a statement. Um, I think is the biggest challenge and it is a rock and a hard place decision because right out, equally important underneath that is, and it may even be right next to it, right? Is when do we make a statement and get your facts straight? Those two things are really the same level of importance to me. And when you're in a crisis, sometimes it takes a little time to get your facts straight. Mm -hmm. So if you find out that it's going to take you a little bit longer to get your facts straight, you're going to have to go ahead and make a statement that at least acknowledges that you understand there's a crisis, your crisis team is in place and they are working on it. And you're going to come out shortly with a clear direction on how either what happened is impacting production, how what happened is it what every crisis is unique, right? But at least you've sort of acknowledged that you're aware of it and that you, either it demonstrates that there's action happening. And then when you have your ducks in a row, you really come out and again, depending on what kind of crisis it is, sometimes it's crisis not of your making. So it's a little bit easier, but certainly if it's a crisis of your making and it's something that involves, I don't know, employee fraud or things that are internal where maybe you've known for a while. I think a lot of the Me Too is a very good example of this, right? So if you go to 
even NBC and like Matt Lauer, it seems like there was sort of some clear things there that NBC knew mm -hmm. and they weren't the best at disclosing how much they knew from the beginning. I think you knew with the firing of Matt Lauer, the fact that it was so abrupt, so, so quick. I think it was a fairly clear indication, you know, wow, this was way worse than we thought. Cause you just, I mean, it goes without saying at the time, someone of that caliber just doesn't get fired like that unless it's a big deal. So my point of all this is saying, if there's more that you should assume it's going to come out because it will come out, someone will find it. <laughs> We're in the day and age we are, there is no real hiding. And especially if somebody knows that you're sort of injured and sort of uh, limping along, they may try to like dig for more than, than you think. So it's very important to come clean, make a clear statement about where you're headed and really keep updating people on the crisis. I think that leads into my question about cancel culture. And in, in the words of Jay-Z, he says, you can't give someone a mic 24 hours a day and have them not, not use it. So <laughs> everybody's going to use their mic. Yeah. How do you, in this world of social media, in this world of cancel culture, how do you make sure that you're addressing the right problem? I guess, how do you control the message is my question. Yeah, no, listen, it's a good question. And I think, I think the first thing I would say is there are some people that need to be canceled, just period and point blank. There are certain people that need to be canceled. But what I believe in me and what we often encourage our clients to focus on is how do we hold people accountable? How do we properly hold people accountable? We make it clear what the problem is. We make it clear where the misstep was. On some level, give them the space, depending on how egregious the misstep was. And again, I want to be very clear. There are certain things that just are an immediate and dismissal. It is and should be. And I think everybody should just, I think any sane person sort of understands that. But I think where, where we want to focus on, in my opinion, is we really want to find the right way to make sure everyone gets due process, but truly due process. Uh, and I think that that doesn't mean it's not about not believing victims. It's not about, it's not about taking side. It's about creating a process so that there's a way to the truth. And I think the fact that, you know, what me too times up what every, what they've done so well, so it needed to happen so long ago, the fact that they were able to really move forward and bravely step forward and just really get at and put people in a place where they were held accountable. And I think that's really ultimately, I think it's, it's such a charged topic and it's such a difficult topic to talk about. Um, even for me who talks and communicates <laughs> for a living, it's a difficult topic because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is something that's really good. We want everyone to be held accountable. Um, and so how do we do that in a way where we're not short-circuiting the due process part, but we're also not letting people off the hook? And I, I, I think it's every, in my mind, situations are unique. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to make sure that everyone has their opportunity to articulate what happened and then create a process to really get to the truth. And that's just very hard and certainly above my pay grade. But I, I think that it's important that we focus on how we hold people accountable. So peeling that onion, um, layers of that onion a little bit more, 
If you look at a lot of companies, especially with BLM and with other movements, I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of HR initiatives like anti-bias training, like setting up your Zoom backgrounds to say, oh, Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of that. How do you measure success to see if you're really successful in communicating to, to the employees that certain behaviors won't be tolerated? Because it's one thing for the CEO to say something and HR to roll out initiatives. In your view, how do you measure success? Yeah, yeah, I, I think we saw a lot of that. And gratefully, I think in Black Lives Matter, I think there was a lot of making the point known that just putting out a statement isn't enough. Just having someone like me craft a statement for you isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about systemic change. And I, and we've said this to our clients, what you're talking about in terms of equity is not Yes, it's a communications problem, but at the heart of it is an operational systematic problem. Like you don't have a path for your your BIPOC employees to move up in the company. Like you don't have a female leader in your C-suite. You don't have a member of the LGBTQ community on your board. Or I think that everyone can, the picture I'm trying to paint, to me, Success around this isn't a communication success. It's a, it's really a systemic work that needs to happen. And it's an operations thing. And I think all too often what happens is, and I think where people get called out, properly called out, is when they do turn to the comms team. And I think the comms team's probably right a statement that is true to the company's values. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it's, but like it, but it is just a statement. And so if the leadership of that company doesn't operationalize, it's just a statement. And so it's not success. So I think what we have to realize, there, there are two separate things. One, one is an operational systemic problem in a company, society. And two is the communication around it. I think it's much easier to draft a statement about your values when there's real action behind them. And you can point to real tangible ways that you are creating access and changing the system. To your point, yeah, number of uh, LGBTQ people on the board or number of uh, female uh, VPs, whatever it may be. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Moving on to the world we're in, which is a virtual world, <laughs> the role of communications hasn't been more important. So tell me about how internal communications within a company could shape culture in a company and how your clients have benefited. Any good examples that come to mind would be great. Yeah, I think it's been, listen, it's interesting. We're a small firm that has always been virtual. We've never been in person. You know, we actually, it's funny. We just had a team lunch yesterday for the first time in, gosh, I guess in what's well over a year face-to-face. And in that time, and I I think through us setting this podcast up, engaged with Gwen, who's on our team, we sat down and I realized that Gwen had not met face to face what kind of food what team. kind of food did you have <laughs> we were at we went to this great place in new york city cook shop and um, okay. burgers were had and I, I think i had a chicken salad which was very boring i could have been more <laughs> inventive on our first team celebration meal right uh, but i wasn't what we tried to do at least on our team was like everybody we're doing all these zooms and i do think at one point i started realizing i i was like i just feel like we're 
let's maybe take a break. I think we started some of the breaks that you're starting to see as well, because I think we were just feeling that. I think the most important thing is the ones that I've seen do well are the leaders who have just organically known to reach out to their black employees at key times, just to not just to check in, just to see how it's going. Um, I think when bosses can sometimes reach out without an ask, um, or you know, you sort of figure out from a management perspective of just an actual check-in. Um, I think that that really matters. Or if you know that. I think the people who have really focused on, because I think family, of course, was put so in everyone's face, um, which I think was good. Um, I think that you see people realizing, oh, wait, but doesn't your kid have this now? So let's move that meeting so that you can do that. And then I think you're seeing the flexibility in juggling. I think the people who aren't doing it well are the people who are are anxious about their employees not working every minute of every day. And this whole idea of you need to be working every minute of every day, every minute of every day. And like, that's just leads to burnout and it just leads to unhappy employees. And so I, I, I have found the ones I've noticed the leaders who are finding ways to like check in, but really personal, just a quick call, a text message, those kinds of things. So trust and empathy are pretty key. Yes. In, in this new environment. Yes. Yeah, to go back to what, been, yeah. 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 It always has been. But I think really what we're seeing is it is the real impact of it because it's it's a felt you you feel like they are they, it's not you're it's not trend. The problem with communicating right now is it all feels what we used to be able to do over coffee or you and I maybe would meet if I was in your city or you were in my city and we would record this and we'd be sitting just, there's that you can't, it's so impossible to articulate what you get from that. And so instead, everything that we're doing is transactional. So what could be a quick conversation by the water cooler for something that may feel weird in an email or text message or phone call, that's gone. And so I think how you put that back in, in a virtual world is really difficult and it just requires, it requires more from managers. And I think managers need to reach out more. That's an interesting point that we can't talk by the water cooler or grab a coffee at Starbucks. How do you make communication two-way? I understand how a manager can communicate to the employee. Are there any tips and tricks for a two-way conversation where employees feel heard? Oh yeah. Listen, I am a big belief in setting up what is setting up the sort of environment that you need to be heard. Right. So if you know your boss is cramming for a presentation, maybe you don't schedule the 20 minutes on their calendar to talk about the raise that you need. <laughs> um, or you know, it is a little bit of like understanding, but I also think it is in how you communicate, can we have 20 minutes, 30 minutes to talk, right? And so I think it's one of those where you said, really, it's not urgent. You need to put qualifiers in there if you're reaching out to your boss, because your boss is probably feeling the same level of drowning that you're feeling. And they have a family too, and they have kids too. Yes. Yes, they have lives. And so like the employee to the employer, it's really just a quick my recommendation would be a quick email that just says quick chat in the subject line, not urgent. You've immediately let them know nothing's wrong. 
And then you can say, listen, I, I'd like to get 20 minutes. There's some things I wanted to talk about, but it's not urgent, but I'd like to really be able to have a focused conversation. Do you mind if I put time on your calendar? And then they already know that they don't need to be multitask. Well, they it, what, if they listen to that email, they would know they need to not be multitasking. Some bosses may not do that. It is what it is. And I can't prevent that. But <laughs> if you've done your best to set it up and set the expectations with them from the beginning, then it becomes much harder. You know, you've really sort of laid the foundation for the conversation to go successfully. And as an employee, you should really prepare what you want to say. You don't have to write a presentation, but just bullet points of what are the main things I want to make sure I articulate. And then you see how they respond. And then that's truly when it becomes two-way. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Anthony, was I live in Silicon Valley. We see a lot of engineers and tech leaders, one of the things they do well is they're innovative, they're resourceful, but sometimes I feel like uh, their communication skills uh, might need a makeover. <laughs> can, you provide, can you provide some uh, best practices for how tech leaders can improve their communication skills? Yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get where can my they start? <laughs> I know I'm trying to figure out of the many things I would recommend. So I think the biggest thing that I would encourage people who again aren't necessarily the best communicators but are the leaders of companies, I think it is just to acknowledge it's not necessarily their strong suit. I think the biggest the biggest challenge over the 20 plus nearly 20 years that I've been doing this is everyone oversimplifies communication. Everyone thinks they're good at it. And the reality is most are not. And so they think they can just sort of wing it. For instance, my guess is these tech leaders, they've been working on something, they've been working on it maybe for six months, a year, two years, and then they want to go out and talk about it. Because they've worked on it so much and they were so in the weeds on it, they think they can manage the communication and launch an initiative or announcement with little preparation. And they've spent all this time preparing to announce or launch something, but they haven't given themselves even a week to practice the announcement or to fine tune the announcement or to look over the talking points, pardon me, or the things that they could do. There's a million ways that they could prepare themselves and most of them probably don't do it. They spent all this time getting ready but then they didn't, when it's most important, they always give themselves probably barely a day, That's two true. days, three days for, for the actual person who's going to deliver the message. But communicating well, there's a lot of work that goes behind it. And I think people want it to be easier than it is. I think a lot of people, frankly, there's a vulnerability in communicating that I think a lot of people are just uncomfortable with. That's why they like immediately say, oh, I can do this. But what they learn is that it's much harder. And if you do build in prep time, you have to be willing to be vulnerable in front of the people that you're practicing in front of. And that's not easy because oftentimes if you're the boss, you're screwing up the message in front of your employees. But guess what? It doesn't matter in front of your employees. It matters when you're in front of a bank of cameras <laughs> or you're standing in front of 300 people. That's when it matters. But it's very hard to get people to practice. But I, I think a lot of times people oversimplify it. That's probably my first, that would be my strongest piece of advice to anybody, especially who, you know, clearly have an engineering tech background who no question that they're smart, 
that's not what we're questioning. I think what we're trying to do is like get people ready to be good communicators and it's a different skill set. Perfect. I'd like to do a lightning round. Hey. Anthony, you are an amazing communicator, we'll but see. I have to ask you, what is your superpower? Uh-huh. <laughs> I think I, I think it is my superpower. <laughs> it's boring is being very routine driven. I really believe in routine will set you free kind of thing. And so I think because of that, I just, things are very structured. I always sort of know where things are going and it's routine is very important to me. And it's really helped me in my career, my life, both personally and professionally. And I'm a big advocate for it. Favorite book. Ooh, that's a very, very hard question for me. I think I probably, I probably would say Buddhism Without Beliefs from Stephen Batchelor. I thought it was a really, I've reread that book, I don't know, 10 or 12 times. It's small, you know, it's a thin book. It's not a, a, a hard read at all, but, and it's written simply and it's, it just really gets at so many things where we get distracted and, and not focused. And every time I read it, it's a new book. I'll have to check it out. Uh, favorite quote? Oh, this is also hard. Writing, it's Barbara Tuckman, the historian. She said, research is endlessly seductive. Writing is hard work or something like that, where it's the concept that people get seduced. They procrastinate. And then when it's actually time to fill a blank page, it's really, really hard. Sage advice. Top three takeaways for our listeners. Ooh, number one, 2021 is going to continue to be about crisis communications. So dust off your crisis management plan. Number two is I think no matter where you are in your career, I think sometimes we hit difficult patches, but do remember it's a choice to be there. And I think sometimes we get sort of lost in the dramas of the day, et cetera. And we forget that we, you know, sort of raised our hand and we're there. So I think sometimes that always helps mellow things out and sort of find a way forward when you're going through a rough patch is that you do have a choice to be there. And then finally, I think the third is I want everyone to meditate more. <laughs> I think it's really powerful. So I know uh, my word for the year is breathe. I think it's yeah, really helpful. <laughs> absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And where can people find you, Anthony? Best place on social media is LinkedIn. And then we obviously have our website, but if people are interested in talking, learning more, we're always happy to talk. So they can just email me at anthony at hazeinitiative.com. And I can add that in the show notes as well for listeners. Great. It was wonderful to have you on the Change Alchemist. Hope to see you in person and uh, have a bite in New York City. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Change Alchemist. If you enjoyed this show, please follow me on Twitter, subscribe on iTunes, tell a friend and see you next week.